dissipation of the fire, the lightning of the smoke, the steam production. Maybe you're hearing the, the line um, uh, smack, smashing around the walls and the ceilings. Those are all those those cues that we're able to pick up on that, that can inherently make the the, uh, the operation coordinated for those outside vent or roof firefighters that are uh, that are in position and are if if they're not in direct communication, they can rely on uh, on those things to basically tell them that that they're, it's okay to open up because now we know that there's water on the fire. We can see that uh, we have signs of extinguishment and conditions are getting better. So those are those kind of inherent signs that we can utilize to, to coordinate our oper uh, operations without that direct, um, that direct transmission in between the engine and the truck. Uh, one thing I want to touch on before, we can, uh, before I forget is uh, Mickey touched on something that was really important here as far as the, the venting for life aspect. And when we talk about you know, venting opposite the fire, and some of the things that I touched on early about, earlier about drawing in that fresh air behind the line, what, one of the, the most profound things that I got out of the last UL study was that even when you have, it doesn't matter if, if the fire is vented you know, opposite horizontally or the fire area is vented uh, vertically above, the rooms that are remote from the fire area, even if they're, they're directly off of, of that same hallway, and with an open door, the room, those rooms are going to be largely unaffected by that ventilation because unless those rooms have an open window, there's, they have no source of intake. So there's no air exchange happening between that room and where the fresh air is being drawn in from the front door and then being uh, blown out through that, that vent opposite or above. So... This is where, where Mickey's point is so tremendous, and we need to make sure that we are um, dedicating the right amount of people and we're aggressively occupying the interior and committing to that rapid primary search to get into those spaces, especially remote of, of the fire room, so we can occupy those spaces, search them, and then vent, uh, vent as we go. The, the important piece of that, that vent as you go, because anybody that's been in the service for, for at least a decade heard that phrase when they were going through basic training uh, during your search uh, component, was vent as you go. Now, that, that phrase taken at face value actually got me into trouble, my first fire on the inside on the truck. Um, so it's important to note that you just can't throw around a term like vent as you go. You have to make sure that you're prefacing it with, you can vent as you go as long as there's water on the fire. You, or you can vent as you go if you've isolated your space from the fire. <clears throat> so if I get into one of those uh, those rooms off the hallway, I close the door behind me, and when I do get to that outside wall, if I take the window, regardless of if there's water on the fire, this, the room I'm in searching is isolated. So now when I reach that outside wall, I can vent as I go. I'll take the glass. The smoke's going to lift. Visibility is going to improve. Now I'm drawing in fresh air to improve the, uh, the tenability of that space. And it, I'm not affecting the fire conditions because I didn't create a low pressure outlet that the fire can, uh, can travel to because that, that door is closed. So now I can go and, and search the room that much faster and conditions are that much better for the victim. And now here's the other part of it too. If I do come across a victim, if that window leads to, is on, it leads to a ground, you know, is a ground level window, 
I can then take that victim right out the window if that's the, the best the, uh, the best thing for the victim's survivability, or if it leads to let's say a, a back porch or you know a suitable uh, a suitable egress path, that may be the way to go. Um, versus t- dragging them out the the contaminated hallway, especially if it's not um, in, the fire's not in check by the advancing hand line. So it's so important, especially if we're we're uh, resource limited that we're making sure that at the very least we're making sure that that first hand line is getting in place effectively and efficiently. And then whatever we have left for resources, if we're strapped, we make sure that we're, we're able to um, accomplish that primary search in the most effective and efficient manner as well. Uh, Nick, let me back up from where you started when you were talking about signs of things going well, as far as the vents and, progression of getting water on the fire. Um, and I'm going to piggyback off that and let's talk about when things are not going well. Um, the word flow path, right? This is something that's taught in fire academies across the nation and it has young firefighters scared for their lives, right? And all the sets are not for failure by not understanding what flow path truly is. Flow path to me is a disruption of a tactical movement, right? So we've all seen that fire that is blowing out the windows, right? And the chief's on the radio saying, guys, how you doing? How you doing? All right, let's, you know, let's pull that line out. Chief, Five more minutes, I got this, all right? And now you're arguing with the chief, right? So understanding flow path as a tactical movement and having a charged line, taking a window behind that line and now drawing the fire, right? Baiting that fire to the hallway will present itself. I always say, you dictate the fire, never let the fire dictate you. That being said, you're searching for this fire, you can't find it, charge line, take a window, open that door of the hallway, introduce that flow path, and have the fire come to you. Now, this isn't a, a tactic that a firefighter has to make. This is a tactic that an officer has to make. And communicate this with the outside chief. That, chief, we got this. We're going to take a window. We're going to date the fire. Um, it's very similar to in anything in hunting, fishing, whatever it may be. You know, you sit in a, a tree stand for hours, right? And you see your trail cam, and you see the deer come in, the deer come out. Then you go sit in a tree stand, and there's no deer for six hours. But if you bait that deer, the deer will come. It's the same concept. Fire starving oxygen, if you provide the oxygen, the fire will present itself to you, and it makes the whole process of putting the fire that much better and that much smoother, where in the end, the chief will say, I almost pulled you out of there, you did a good job, man. And that's what makes a truly good, aggressive engine company, is hanging in there and using the flow path as your benefit. So uh, one of the, the situations that, that I ran into, which was, uh, was a similar situation where we had you know, a heavy smoke condition, because let's be honest, most of the fires that we're going to, visibility is, is shot. Um, I can probably count on, on one hand the amount of fire, the fires of recent that I can recall where I had legitimate visibility. Usually we're, you know, popping the door and the smoke's to the floor. So unless the, you know, the fire's rock, rocking and rolling and, you know, we've got a, a line of sight on it, you know, we're going to have to, you know, look for it to some extent. Um, and especially if it's a little bit more deeper seated or maybe it's in the, uh, the concealed spaces, we're going to have to rely on some of our other senses as well. Um, one of the things that, that I, you know, I was taught by, uh, by a more senior person was to, if the fires, the, the location of the seat of the fire is not readily apparent to just stop, stop moving, stop, you know, just do nothing, but just pause for a second Make sure everybody around you is still and just listen. And a lot of times, if, every, if, if people are still, 
you can pick up on that crackling noise and at least um, kind of home in on the direction of where that seat of the fire is. And that, that that's uh, paid dividends for me in the past where, you know, I, I had a new nozzle firefighter with me at one fire and I just said, hey, stop, stop, stop. Just be quiet for a second. And then a few seconds, you hear that crackling. Um, you know, we can't, unfortunately, we can't rely on feeling that heat as much as we used to. Um, because we're so encapsulated now, uh, you know, the, the technology of our gear advancing is a, is a blessing and a curse all rolled into one. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the, the sensitivity that we, we once had to be able to kind of um, track the fires as easily uh, as it was in the past. So just kind of going back to, to old school, just relying on, on you know, the, that, that tactile and auditory, those those your five senses, you know, basically uh, to tracking down that fire. That'll also be a tremendous benefit. And then also, you know, if you have the thermal imaging camera, cameras, you know, utilize those to, to your benefit as well. You know, try and track, you know, find the, find the heat signatures, try and, you know, track where, you know, where the heat's being generated from. And these are all going to help in that process of you, you know, tracking down where, you know, where the fire's located if you're in one of those scenarios like Mickey was just describing. Yeah, Nick, I find myself using that, that, that sense of firing the fire probably more times than one would think. Almost every fire at one point, especially in the truck company, where you pause, hold your breath, you click your diaphragm, and just take it in. I call this, you're going to think I'm crazy when I start talking my crazy stuff here, but I call this my zen efficiency on the fire floor. It's when you have acceptance that you have zero, you have zero control of what's going on. And once you accept the fact you have no control, you, in fact, gain control of the complete situation. And that's when the fire will come to you. Fire is an energy, and when you understand fire brain and Zen efficiency working hand in hand, that fire will be drawn to you, and it'll it'll come through you, and you are part of the part of the whole realm of what is going on in that moment. No, and I, and I, lo- and I love that, and I really dig you know some of the stuff that you've been putting out lately. Um, it's very cerebral, and it's I dig it. I'm not smart enough to understand half of it. <laughs> I'm not even Mick, I'm t- Mick, I'm telling you, you. I've always said this to you. You, you have uh, an incredible way with words, and I think um, for people that don't follow you, if you're on Instagram, Top Floor Tactics, and of course, you know Nick, your page too, Fireside Training. But um, you know, Mickey, with your posts, they're very in tune with the fire ground in a way that um, I often don't read from anyone else, and I, I think it's a unique, uh, a unique perspective you offer. And, uh, and you do that through your uh, page, which is incredible. So uh, I want to go back to a couple things real quick. Um, you know, uh, I think, Nick, you made a good point before. I remember 25 years ago when I came into fire service, I had a couple old guys tell me, high heat, zero visibility, you to punch every piece of glass you can find. And, uh, and so as we know over time and through the studies you've been involved with and everything else, the importance of not doing that and understanding the signs. And that leads us up to the conversation we were just having about using your five senses, understanding your environment, listening and feeling for that heat and where the seat of the fire is. Super important. Um, let's talk about staffing priorities. Um, you know, and I, I have a couple notes jotted down. Um, you know, we were we were talking prior to when we started tonight. We talked about a couple different things, but staffing is always an issue. Right. And Mick, you come from a department where you have um, adequate to maximum staffing on your apparatus. Uh, Nick, I'm not 100 percent familiar with your department, but I have to think you're a three or four man company. 
Yes, we have uh, six, six engines, two trucks. The trucks have a uh, minimum staffing of four. Okay. Uh, the, the engines uh, are assigned with four, but we have, unfortunately, uh, a couple of contracts ago, we lost our, our minimum fourth man on the engine, so now we run with a minimum of three. Got you. So oftentimes, and I know uh, by you know talking with people from all over for, for a couple of years now and really getting a gist of, of the uh, variances across the country as to how people operate. But the prioritization of ventilation seems to take a back seat. Um, when, you, when you don't have specifically assigned uh, seats on that apparatus, say on the truck, right, unless it's combination or, or a, uh, you know, cross-train company, depending, it might be an engine, but you're doing truck work, whatever the fact. You know, prioritization of, of the goals on the fire ground, typically ventilation does not become one of them. Um, fire attack, life safety, right? We put water on the fire, problem starts to go away. We get people in looking for, you know, looking for survivors, uh, everything like that. But the point is, is that ventilation certainly should be a high priority function on the fire ground because it enables us to do those other tasks quicker, more efficiently, correct? Uh, that's 100%, Jeremy. And I think the horizontal ventilation is, is more times than not is going to have one of the best return on investments for, for tactics. Talk especially. about that. Yeah, talk about that. So especially for those, those resource-limited departments, which is, you know, more departments than not. Uh, so for those that don't have the dedicated truck companies or maybe those truck companies are running very light, you know, I, I, I've heard of, I mean, there's, there's truck companies in, the, in, in, in Connecticut, you know, career departments that are running with, you know, two-man two ladder companies. Right. You know, with, with no officers. So, you know, uh, I'm fortunate where I am where the, the four-man ladder companies, their standing operating procedures are, are to split. We have an inside and an outside truck. So you have, you know, the off, officer and the ironsman go, go in and, and go to the fire floor, and you have the, uh, the ladder chauffeur and you have the, uh, the outside vent firefighter, you know, work, work together on the outside. But so for for your everyday bread and butter room and contents fire, you're going to be able to have the intended effect that you're looking for through taking glass. So you're, if you vent opposite, you're you know typically for your average resident, you know residential dwelling, you're going to have ample windows in place to be able to have that effect that you're you're looking for to relieve conditions for the engine company that's making that push. Um, which in, to, in turn is going to, you know, have uh, life safety benefits for any of those victims that are trapped. So you take one person with a six-foot hook and, you know, maybe a portable or ground ladder if it's on an upper floor, and that one person could effectively, you know, take the glass and perform that, you know, uh, that vent ventilation for extinguishment function. So for most departments, that's going to be the go-to. So, I mean, even for a top, uh, top floor fire, you're, you can still, you know, have the effect that you're looking for through that horizontal means. Yes, we all know that that vertical ventilation is is the most effective and efficient, you know, form of, of ventilation in, in in relation to airflow. But as far as efficiency of, of resources and reflex time, it's much less efficient because, you know, you take a, a just a two a normal, you know, two and a half wood which everybody has in their community. And it's probably the, the bread and butter building for, for mo most people that are tuning in here tonight. You know, that's going to be a lot more labor intensive. You're talking, you know, two people that now have to, you know, you know throw, throw a ground, uh, a, a larger ground ladder. 
you know, maybe get get the aerial up. Now they have to, you know, get up to the roof. Depending on the pitch, they may have to operate off of a, a roof ladder or from an aerial device. And now, you, you know, you have to, you know, go to work cutting and then punching down to get down to that space below where you look at the, the average bedroom and most bedrooms have at least two windows in them. And each of those windows is going to be about 10 square feet of opening. So you figure, you know, two, two, uh, you know, two windows, that's 20 square feet of opening. You know, once that line starts operating, you know, it's going to, you know, make those windows pure exhaust. So now you have 20 square feet of exhaust versus, you know, 16 square feet for uh, uh, your, your typical standard four by four roof cut. And it's going to occur in a lot less time. Nick, I love all that you just said. Yeah. Hear some people, you don't hear people say that too often, and I was 100% on board with that. It's everything I stand for. Um, it's an understanding that everything on the fire ground exists in a temporary form, for good or for worse. So it's either if you are understaffed and you can't get that hole in the roof, you're going to take a beating just for a short time, right? Or the fire is going to eventually vent itself and things will increase. But it's only... Temporary. Everything happens temporary on the fire floor. So when you understand that you're controlling energy rather than fighting a fire, is a good reason in understanding why you should vent and sometimes why you don't have to vent. You're not fighting a fire, you're controlling energy. And if energy controls itself, everything will get better by itself. So number one thing we do, right, is life. So how do we save most lives? Water on the fire or, my opinion, horizontal ventilation and search. Whatever floor it is, the fire is on, wherever the fire is above you or below you, if you are searching horizontally, you will save more lives than putting a mismanaged hole, a mistimed hole, on a vertical vent. Yeah, all, all very good points, for sure. Um, so, okay. Uh, good, Mick, or Nick, you got anything else you want to hit on that? Well, I think just you know, one last thing to touch yeah, on. Yeah, do it. Even, even for, you know, the departments that are that are around my size where you know, you're getting a, a, a decent amount of people on, on, a, on a working fire assignment you know we're, we're by no means uh, you know resource rich but we've got a fair amount of people coming out of working fire assignment but even for us you know, I, I work in, in I work in New England so we're very uh, big proponents of, of vertical ventilation um, and we regularly do it but the thing even for a department like us, have to look at it's all comes down to priorities and how and like Mickey so beautifully just said how how can I best utilize the resources that I have to have the greatest impact on any victims that may be trapped on the inside and it's it's so easy for us to go into autopilot mode and just go right to the roof and start cutting a hole uh, you know for that top floor fire but if I can get the effect that I'm looking to have by, you know, one person, you know, perform a horizontal ventilation, and now I can free up some additional manpower to maybe, you know, augment the, those searches, and maybe that 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 second person can go do a, a VES uh, and you know target a, a bedroom. Um, you know, you're, now we're we're putting more emphasis on that life safety component because again, if I can have the the intended effect I'm looking for, and I can I can do it quicker with less people. Well, isn't isn't it accomplishing the mission better? And I think that's what we need to really look at instead of, well, I'm 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 riding in the outside today, so you know I, I go to the roof. That's just what we do. We need to actually constructively and specifically size up each individual incident so we can 
gauge the conditions, gauge the, you know, against the building construction, against the resources that we have available so we can make the, the decisions that's going to have the best possible outcome. And that's key. And that's the key there. I love that, man, because, you know, I wrote down while you were talking, I wrote down audible too often we get railroaded into thinking it's the same bread and butter fire and I'm just going to go through my paces and go through my task and go do my job. Whereas, you know, we need to size up each fire independently from the last. Um, and, you know, if it's uh, if we can, you know, like you said, allocate our resources to a better allocation of services based on that particular fire versus the one before or the one before that, then we're going to we're going to be more successful, uh, a quicker win, if you will. And uh, things will get better a lot quicker. Jeremy, can I just uh, say something about that real quick? I, I guess so. No, of course, man. Okay. Do it. Um, with the influx of all the hot classes out there, I think that their training is so good that it's almost setting up young, motivated fire, firemen for failure because they're getting the skills and they're learning how to cut the roofs and they're getting confident on the roof and the pitches. And that's great. I'm telling you, the training is tremendous these days. But there's a gap there where they're not understanding where to fit in on the fire ground. So the guy is motivated and went to every hot class there was and went to every training class, goes to a fire in a volunteer department and sees, okay, I'm a little late getting here. I see a line in the door. Uh, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to go cut the roof because I know I'm good at it. And I know everyone will see me cut the roof because, hey, I'm good at it. I want to be seen at this fire. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. I think that the disconnect comes from such good hands-on training and not so good connecting the dots on why we're cutting, where we're cutting, and how we're cutting. Good points. I mean, you know, you, you talk about theory. You talk about in implementing theory and, and, and practicality and then execution. Um, you know, sometimes A plus B equals, you know, A plus B plus C equals D we can't forget A and B. We can't just go to C to get to D, right? Right. Yeah. Well said. I think it's important to, to, to note, too. I mean, yeah, while Mickey and I are clearly on the same page here, you know, this, this isn't to, to, to knock it, the, the vertical ventilation aspect of it. There's no. Clearly, there's clearly a time and a place. I mean, even with the, you know, the, the, peak, the peak roof dwellings, you know, if you're if the fire's in the attic, or the, you know, and, and you don't have you know suitable horizontal uh, options, you know, whether they be you know gable vents or windows, um, or it's in a, a, a finished half-story space, and we have knee walls, and the fire's in the concealed spaces, you know, you can bet that I want somebody up on that roof that's going to ventilate the, those spaces effectively and relieve that pressure that's building up behind those knee walls. You you, know, you absolutely bet that that's that's a, a value and should you know should be emphasized. So again, but it's it, the key is the time and the place, and, and recognizing you know where the fire is, you know how it's progressing, and what you know what you have available for, for natural openings before you you go and commit to to creating that that topside opening if it's needed. Yeah, and I I, I like where you went, that Mickey. I want to lead you into this conversation real quick. Nick just mentioned pressure. Too often we talk about fire, smoke, gases. Pressure, velocity, these are things that are critical to identifying the fire ground. And I know that on your top floor tactics page, you talk a lot about energy, right? That that the fire is energy. And you approach it in a different way than most 
in how you rationale things on the fire ground due to energy. Um, am I, I'm not off on that, correct? No, you're right. Okay. So the importance of, let's, let's take it back to a little theory here and what Nick's saying about obviously opening up the top side if we have, if the building and the conditions warrant, but maybe just for people listening, that's not a hundred percent familiar with your take on, on uh, how you view things and your thoughts on energy and pressure and how you just relate that to uh, ventilation and, and how critical that is. Well, velocity to me is, like you said, energy. Um, but velocity is also the speed of instinct in which you must react to it. So you can read smoke. and We all learn how to read smoke. And I think in most fire academies teach us, if not, you can go on YouTube and read smoke. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. But by understanding the speed of velocity will set the cadence of the steps you need to do to move that energy, right? We can't control it, but we can attempt to move it. And by moving it, we'll understand where we dictate the fire to move to, right? We, the fire should never dictate us. We move the fire on our chessboard. So think about it as a chess match, right? The pawns are all the, all the steps happening early on. Apparatus placement, right? Line placement, getting a good water source. These are the pawns moving out initially on the attack to attack the enemy. Right. Then we have the knights. Right. The knights are now the officers moving into place. Then you have the bishops. The bishops may be the fire force sector or the company that's advancing. The seat of the fire really is the opposite king and queen. And they can move anywhere they want. But attacking them takes steps. And every step you do will dictate the final outcome. So when you speak about velocity, you, you, you see some of these chess matches where it's boom, 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 back and forth. The speed chess, right? That's velocity. Or you can play a drawn-out planned skilled game where there's no time limit and that's the basic one room fire where you can strategically think about it and move your pieces around but when the shit's on you better have your a game on and your a game is understanding velocity where you fit in on the fire ground love it bro love it absolutely all right where do we want to take this we want to take this um maybe uh maybe walk us through a scenario what you two what goes through your mind when we're rolling up and take it to the either front seat or the back seat on arrival and talk about things to look for, um, you know, observations, size up, and uh, maybe take me through, your, you know, your thought process of uh, conditions to tactics to, uh, you know, the importance of how ventilation plays a role in all that. You go ahead, Nick. <laughs> Or do, or do you want to go somewhere else? Listen, this is an open conversation. You guys want to take no, it somewhere else? No, I like that. I like that. I've been talking too much though. Let, let's roll. Let's roll with it. Cool. So when I so when I first when I first get on scene and we pull past and I get my my three sided view of the building, what I'm trying to do is, is I like the like the, that simple acronym of, of bagging fire. And if anybody's not familiar with that, it's where's the fire been, where is it at, and where is it going? And then when we evaluate that, it's not only you know, those factors of, you know, location spread, but it's also, you know, we talk about, uh, Mickey touched on a, a, a said a beautiful word before, and it's cadence. So, and part of that cadence is determining the rate, the fire's rate of change. So how quickly is this fire progressing? How quickly is it, is it, you know, getting bigger? Is it, is it traveling? Because that's going to be, is going to dictate my operational tempo and determine, you know, how quickly we need to move, how much time that we have to operate and, that that's going to be a trip the, the kind of the driving factor in, in how we do things and you know how much time we have. 
so that that's kind of my my basic for when we're rolling up. And then, you know, from from an engine company officer standpoint, you know, I'm trying to you know figure out where I can best access the fire to make sure I protect those uh, those main paths of egress and have my uh, my best shot on the approach to knock down the fire to seal off the the space that it that it's you know that it originated from and to try and have a an opening opposite me to, to push it out from. So that's. So I'm looking at that. So as I'm sizing up the building, I'm trying. I'm trying to look at those factors, and then also try to figure out where, you know, the outside uh, vent firefighter, roof firefighters, they're going to need to position too. So that way, when they communicate with me, that I know that they're in the best position to uh, to vent to uh, enable us to make that push that much more seamlessly. Beautiful. Well said. Well said. Mickey, what about you, brother? I mean, some places you go, it's a it's an easy two floor walk up. Other places, you're you're getting out of the rig and you're sticking your head straight up in the air and looking up uh, many many floors. So maybe you got a little bit different of approach than uh, than Nick. Um, no, that was great, Nick. I, you know, for me, it starts you know having a systematic approach to when you set your gear up in the morning. Um, that sets that word cadence again. That sets the cadence for the tour. So every run. You get dressed the same. Talk right? about so, that. That's so important, so, man. So, so getting run. I mean, so so uh, getting dressed in every run, having that systematic method, right? So you don't have to think about it. So when you have a mile ride or you have six blocks to get to the fire, what happens when the fires across the street? If you don't have that systematic method in place from day one, you're going to be behind an eight ball, right? So get dressed quickly. You can't be thinking about getting dressed because your mind should already be about the next thing, finding that meditative state, right? On a way to a fire is when you have to find that zone. It's I think we've all been there. If you're responding to a working fire and you know you have a working fire, so and it's almost like your lower mind is transforming to your higher mind. So your lower mind is logic, reason, and fact. It's everything we learned in the fire academy. But when you instinctually understand what's happening and using time as a tool, you are now transforming to your higher mind. Your higher mind is instinct. And when you arrive on the fire ground, you operate under instinct. So all those things lead up to where you have to be and how you have to get there. Love it. Love it. So walk me through it. We get there. Are you there? Me? Yeah. You My cut it. about to die, so like, let me see what's going on. <laughs> you know me, Jeremy. I get it, brother. We're good. No worries. <laughs> No worries. I do want to say, um, you know, I was able to get this recorded, so we are recording um, and so on, which would be good to uh, to get it out there. But I do want to say this. As we're going forward with all this conversation, uh, I'd love to hear from anyone down below uh, in the audience. Uh, I see a couple of familiar faces down there. If you guys have anything, just raise your hand. We'll bring you up on the stage and, um, you know, initiate another type or, or question or a different part of the conversation. I'd love to do that. So, so while Mickey, while Mickey works out his IT issues real yeah. quick, he, uh, he touched on something that was, was tremendous and I couldn't agree more with. And, and I, I do the same thing as I am very much a, a creature of habit and breeding uh, and having that routine and breeding that habit is what develops that, that intuitive mind, that higher mind that he was talking about. Because the, the more automated that we become in, in, uh, by, by developing those routines and having those habits, we now free up that headspace, which allows us to pick up on those more subtle nuances of the fire ground. 
so that we can we don't get get sucked in, sucked into that tunnel vision and suffer from that auditory exclusion that can happen as we get ramped up as we're trying to you know put those pieces together if we don't have those uh, those procedures in place because the the more instinctual we are with our with our, our movements with our uh, with our approach. Uh, the better off we're going to be because now it's it, basically our brains are like computers. So the, the less, you know, kind of RAM we're using or, you know, you know the less, uh, you know, we're, we're occupying with those, you know, more ancillary or um, rudimentary procedures, the more we're going to, the more freedom we're going to have to take in those more finite details, which, you know, to, to quote uh, the great Tom Neary, that, that, you know, the, what separates the good ones from the great ones is the ability to size up. And, you know, it, the, the, be, the best bosses I worked for the, were the ones that were, that were so calm and that had everything down to uh, such a solid routine that it, they, they were so relaxed and were able to take everything in and make those, those you know, very clear-cut decisions and move with such purpose and made it look effortless. I love it, man. It's good. We got uh, we got a. Uh, I, I want to pronounce his name correctly, but uh, how do you booty? Is it booty? Hey, what's up, guys? How yeah, are you, man? Booty. booty. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Boy. Nice. Uh, yeah, right on. Uh, I'm a little bit of a new uh, career firefighter. I've been in, a, in the department for about two years with a background in. in uh, EMS, um, but so our department, um, I wanted to ask a question about ventilation, um, and <clears throat> I wanted to ask this because our department, uh, for the most part, doesn't really use vertical ventilation, and although that might sound surprising uh, at, at first, a lot of our construction uh, uses we don't use insulation because it's hot, um, and so a lot of the construction, you know, we everyone has their windows open, so there's a lot of natural ventilation occurring at the fire ground. Um, so we kind of supplement that with, you know, p- positive pressure ventilation and things like that, um, and horizontal ventilation. Um, but there's some new, there's been some new construction going on in different parts of the island where people have air conditioning units and, and heavily insulated uh, housing. Um, so um, the department is starting starting to transition uh, to more vertical ventilation-based operations with training and things. Um, and so, you know, with, with that said, of course, we're, like, concerned about backdraft and things like that, right? Because, um, you know, people are going to be so used to horizontal ventilation, right? Um so my question is, I wanted to hear your what you what you guys have on uh, the risk versus reward uh, aspect of vertical versus horizontal ventilation. Anyone want to tackle that one? All right. I'll, so I'll I'll step up for this one. And again, you know, my department regularly executes you know vertical ventilation, and you know our probably half of our, our bread and butter fires are, are, you know, three and a half story uh, wood balloon frames. So, you know, we call them, you know, just three deckers. I know that differs a little bit from Boston's definition of a three decker, but so we're, we're used to, you know, operating, you know, on peaked roofs that are, you know, 30 plus feet, you know, above the ground. 
So and then in, and I work in New England, so you, you we deal with uh, you know the icy and snowy conditions during the cold weather months. So as far as risk benefit is, I mean the the, the data and the statistics just aren't there for, for it being. Uh, I know it, it, some people try to label it as this this dangerous tactic because you know, you're operating you know above the fire on you know a, a, a peaked roof, um, but if you, you look at the statistics, they're just. There, there aren't people like falling off on uh, falling off of roofs on a regular basis, and I know you, know, you take uh, you know, I don't know if Sean Egan's still in the in the audience, but you look at a place like Buffalo that you know those guys are on more roofs than Santa Claus, and you don't you don't hear <laughs> there it those is. guys falling off of roofs every other day. So I mean, as far as the, the the risk component, I mean, I don't see it being any more of a risk than than any other ta- uh, tactic on the fire ground per se. Um, but it, it were, what you need to look at is not risk versus benefit. You need to look at it as return on investment. So if you can get the job done with horizontal ventilation uh, and the, 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 the manpower that you're saving can be better utilized elsewhere, then that, that's your answer. If you do, you know, I know Honolulu is a, a, a pretty good sized job. So if you do have, if you are well staffed and you do have the additional manpower to add vertical ventilation in addition to horizontal um, without it interrupting any of the other primary functions of you know, the, the, the search and the fire attack, and it's going to be beneficial, then, you know, by all means. So one of the things that uh, that I'll add in there as well that that's kind of needs to be a, a, a point of consideration for, for those that are along the coastal communities, and this was a conversation I had with uh, with Ben Schultz, uh, who works in uh, I think uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. So when I was, when I was teaching at the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference a few years back, he brought up he asked a really good question, and you know, kind of we were spitballing back and forth. He said, you know, we've always been a you know a, a more horizontally driven uh, ventilation fire department. He goes, but now we're starting to see this hurricane rated glass, and you know, we're starting to see more of this this impact resistant glass coming on the scene especially in these coastal areas that are subject to uh to these these the, the storms you know, the hurricanes and other uh, other storm surges so now you you need to have more invasive maneuvers to tackle this uh this impact resistant glass um you know some of which you know may actually require you know po- you know power tools being used to just perform basic uh you know window ventilation so you need to look at if I'm resorting to these, uh, you know, more advanced techniques to just simply take this window, well, it, it may actually be more of a return on investment to just go up to the roof and, you know, cut, uh, just cut a hole that I can make bigger and, and have the ability to expand out versus trying to, you know, go at this impact, uh, you know, impact rated glass and then have to do it all over again for the, for the next window or two uh, or two. So it's it's really just you know looking at your particular environment and scenario and, and again it's it's return on an investment is the best way I can put it. I like that. Right on, Jeremy. I appreciate your uh, your input on that. Um, it's definitely something that like I would like to you know just bring up in conversation at at the dinner table. You know, um, I think that the department needs to start talking about it and. Uh, try to get more people on board uh, because there is this kind of, um, uh, you know, when people don't train enough, there becomes a fear. There, there, the fear starts to come in, right? Oh, what if this happened? What 
Well, if you train on it, then it's not dangerous, right? 100%. I mean, you have, ahead of you, you have a culture shift that uh, takes ground floor and working your way up. And typically, you'll find people are standoffish or don't entertain new ideas when they're not familiar or trained or confident in their skills to do that. And so uh, it is going to be a culture swing for you guys, and it's going to take... Um, you know, uh, department, department of training and everybody else to get involved, to educate, especially if you guys aren't doing it on a regular basis. So, Woody, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming up on the floor. Uh, and, uh, Mickey, are you still here? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, cool. Uh, I got another one. Um, I got another Jeremy wants to pop up another Jeremy dude. This is the best thing about this platform. There's a bunch of Jeremy's on it and I love it. So Jeremy, what's up, brother? How are you guys doing? Good. I see, I see Buddy's, uh, Boogie, I believe. Yeah, he's in, he's in Oahu, and I'm on Maui. So uh, just a little bit on his, uh, you know, they're doing more vertical vents, and we're training a lot more in that also, but our lightweight construction is pretty much every house, you know, and, and our response times is another issue as well as far as us on this island to do vertical ventilation. So it, we train a lot of, with it, which is, which is a little bit better than... It used to be. I, I've been in for at least 13 years, I think. It, I just made 13 years. And, and it was always something as was like a big fight between vertical and, you know, because of the way our houses are constructed, like you were saying. But we're starting to get these these houses with, like you were talking about, those, those hurricane glass. And, um, you know, now we got everybody's got solar panels. It's another issue. So I wanted to bring up that to you guys and how you guys see that being an issue with vertical ventilation and the hazards that come with it, uh, you know, whether there be shutoffs, I know there's supposed to be shutoffs and stuff like that. And, and we haven't really dove into that as much as I think we should, um, I, I guess in our department or in general, because, you know, who knows if it's, I know it's supposed to cut off. Sometimes there's a shutoff on, on the ground. Sometimes there's a shutoff on the road. There's there's a lot of different um, different things with that. So, what kind of issues do you guys see coming with the prev, you know the more and more use of these these solar panels that, that are in people's homes, especially the ones with the batteries? Nick, you good? Good. Um, where I work, we don't see too many solar panels on private dwellings or uh, residential homes. We see them on the bigger H type buildings on the flat roofs or on taxpayers, which is a, um, a store. So as far as um, residential fires and vertical veiling there, it's, it's really not an, it's not an issue where I'm from. I'm sure Nick can probably elaborate more on that. Uh, my advice to you would be to reach out to the actual manufacturer of the solar panels and bring them in-house and see what they have to offer. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to come out and go over some training, um, some basic uh, SOPs on how to deal with them. Uh, I'm sure with every manufacturer comes, like you said, it's located in different areas. Um, but that's really probably getting out into your district, see what's going on, and reaching out to these manufacturers. Um, that's all I really have is uh, solar panels. We're talking about flat roofs um, in a big big H-type building, which I'm not sure you're dealing with in Hawaii, but uh, they are definitely a problem. Um, and that just, you know, if you're dealing with this, it comes back again to that horizontal event Get in there with the truck companies, pulling ceilings, and, and aggressive engine companies. So as far as, as, far as the solar panels go, uh, we're 
we're the opposite. So our, we're not seeing them on the, the multiple dwellings that are three, are three deckers and, and six families. We're seeing them in uh, the small the, the small outlying uh, you know bedroom communities in the outlying parts of the city uh, where we do have the private dwellings. So we are starting to see you know more and more of them you know as the as the days go on. Um, and the, the typical, you know, panelized, uh, you know, sol- uh, solar energy, uh, you know, those have, you know, metal frames, they, you know, they're earth grounded. So, you know, you can't, you can't screw with these things, um, you know, barring, you know, trying to, to you, know, pr- you know, pry them, pry them up from their base, which again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even b- bother messing with these things. And again, you're, you're talking about you know, reflex time and all that jazz. Uh, it's the, the nice thing is if it's a peaked roof. You know, typically the panels are on either the southern or eastern exposure to capture the most light. So on a peaked roof, you should have one, uh, at least one unaffected pitch that you can still operate off of. Uh, again, you still want to be mindful of, um, you know, make sure that you're not, uh, you know, contacting these these panels because if they do get damaged, again, the frames are metallic uh, and it, and they're earth grounded. So um, you know they. They can be ener- they can be energized even with these rapid shutoffs. Um, in the time frame that we're looking to operate in, even you know killing that rapid shutoff, you still have to you know treat these panels as being alive because you know they can you know, still have stored energy in them. So you know we for all intents and purposes we have to consider these things as being as being alive while we're interfacing with them. So my my thing would be if you do have a, a, a have a roof where in a fire where, where vertical ventilation is viable or it's needed, um, just work off of the non-panelized side of the roof and just be mindful of uh, when you're setting that roof ladder not to come in contact with the panels on the other face. And you know, other than that, you, you really shouldn't have you know too many other issues. You know, at least in the the, the peaked roof dwelling uh, environment. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Jeremy, thanks for the question, bro. I appreciate that for hopping in, man. It's awesome. Super jealous of you guys from from the islands, man. I'm I'm like uh, there's two of you in here. I'm I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. I think that I, I think the thing too. I think the yeah. I I think the thing too is you know it just goes to obstructions and construction and uh, you know we're always going to be impeded in some way and so solar panels are just another level of. Uh, impeding our services and you know frankly it goes into that size up of can we work vertically or do we have to go horizontally um i think that's you know big part of the conversation if it's not solar panels it's a water tower if it's not a water tower it's a a aging chimney if it's not aging chimney it's uh god i mean the list goes on and on of things that could potentially be there so um you know obstacles nick you said something before that caught my attention um ROI instead of risk versus reward. I love that, bro. I am a huge ROI guy on everything I do in life and in business and to weigh your return on investment. Um, I love that. I'm going to start using that more, I think. I'm stealing it from you. And I'm going to start using that more in my decision-making on the fire ground when I look at things because I really think that is a smart way to look at it. Yeah, it's it, it, taking some of those uh, those business or finance terms. There's there's definitely some some parallels that you can draw because sure. when we're talk, when we're talking about ventilation, you know, somebody had mentioned it earlier, but I mean, you could go on YouTube and spend a couple hours looking at at you know fire ground footage of, of ventilation gone wrong, and it, it's it's kind of 
villainize the tactic for a little while. Again, I, I, I'm, thankfully, that pendulum seems to be coming back towards center. But the problem is not the tactic. It's the problems with our execution of it. And going back to you know the, the term cadence that Mickey brought up in the very beginning, the problem is that we're outmaneuvering ourselves instead of outmaneuvering the fire. Uh, and we have to remember that ventil- you know, ventilation, if it comes, you know, just before fi- you know fire attack, uh, yes, we're going to have a, you know a, a lifting and leaning effect that may improve conditions, especially on that approach in you know that that immediate time before water application. But if that water doesn't come promptly, that's when things are going to start, start to go sideways. When as it does lean out, whatever opening we created, eventually it's going to overwhelm that opening. Whatever lift we got, that fire is going to start to bank back down again. And whatever we gain, we're going to lose and then some. So that's that point, again, that point of diminishing return, if you want to roll, roll with the, the financial terms, um, you know, because... You know, ventilation's a it's a support function. It's not meant to be a, a, a standalone thing here. So we have to remember that it all boils back down to timing and coordination. So we, we have to re- make, make sure that we're again outmaneuvering the fire and not ourselves. Love it, Mick. What do you got for me? What do you want from me, Jeremy? I don't know, brother. <laughs> I mean, there's you know we're we're hitting on a lot of good things here, and I I you know the whole. The conversation we had was I wanted to talk detail, which I think we're doing a good job of tonight because, you know, too often training and conversations are broad stroke. And I think we in the fire service need to start getting into detail because it's in the details that makes the difference, right? So we talked about some horizontal. We talked about some vertical. I mean, we also have mechanical ventilation. And some parts of this country are using uh, mechanical ventilation as part of their fire attack uh, you know, initiating fire attack and, uh, and you know, directly impacting the push and creating that um, artificial flow path, if you will, to speed it up. Um, thoughts on that? I don't think either of your departments do that, um, and I don't for sure on the fire ground. Um, but mechanical ventilation um, is part of what we do, and uh, there might be somebody here tonight that needs some little tidbit on that. Do anybody have anything on mechanical ventilation? Uh, we use it for our larger buildings, so for a project or a uh, building over, I, I don't know the exact number, I'm not going with the books, but I'm going to say 10 stories, 8 stories, but a high rise more or less. But you can pressurize the stairwell, right? and that's where we use our, our, our uh, mechanical. Okay, so that's going to that's gonna give you an easier push for the engines making the stairwells, and it's going to give fresh air to the, uh, because you guys do operate a fire attack stairwell versus a... Uh, evacuation stairwell, correct? Yes. Okay. Good. Nick, ver- uh, mechanical ventilation, anything on that? It's not a very sexy topic, but it is something that we do. It's not, but I'd love to, um, to, to give you, give you my, my two cents. Yeah, please. The whole, positive, the whole positive pressure attack thing, because my, you know, my department does not, um, utilize, you know, mechanical ventilation during, uh, the, the fire attack. It's, Strictly a you know post fire control uh, smoke removal uh, you know te- technique, but as far as PPA goes, in my eyes, the the best form of PPA PPA is a flowing and moving canline. That that is the the most organic form of positive pressure attack you, that, that there is going. Why would I want to eat up manpower and then throw in this 
um, this variable, which is going to take a lot of the, the control and, and the, the tempo out of my hands now, or is going to greatly accelerate it um, when I've got the solution in my, in my hands as an, as an engine company. Because when I push in with that charged hand line and I start flowing and, and flowing and moving, I'm bringing in at the very least 5,000 cubic feet per minute of air behind me. I'm creating my own pressure front with my hand line. So why do I need a fan to do what I'm already doing? So now I, I, I'm, I'm already creating that pressure front. If I've got a vent opposite me, now I've got a place to push all that, that pressure and that, that heat smoke and products of combustion. So again, it's to me, it's just redundant and you're adding another layer of complexity and creating another fa- uh, failure point. Something I don't understand about, the, uh, about this technique or this tactic or whatever you want to call it. A, I think that if your department does use this and you haven't killed someone or burned down a building yet, you're just lucky. And luck will run out. But orchestrating that, that, you know, we talk about timing. So orchestrating that timely attack, right? So number one, again, I always go back to this. What's our first priority in the fire ground? It's life, then property. Life starts by putting water on the fire, but also searching for life through the windows horizontally, right? So that limits what windows you can or cannot take because you have to create that, that pressurized flow path that's pushing the fan behind the engine and out a certain window on the other side of the building. So by limiting where you can and cannot search, I think it defeats the purpose of what our job is. Is that like a mic, is that like a mic drop right there? Because that was like pretty damn good. <laughs> I liked it. That was good. I I agree with you, and and I think I think your your opening statement, if you haven't burned down or killed someone yet, I think there's some validity to that, man. I I I'll tell you, I've seen it firsthand um, a couple times, and it's made me pucker. Um, you know, uh, it's just it, it's man. You know, you got to make sure that that line is getting into position, and it's making that push, and that engine team has the ability to make that push. And there better not be anything hesitating or holding them back because if they can't get to where they need to be, uh, you're making it a lot worse on the other side for everyone. So I don't think there's any department in the nation that is good enough to pull that off successfully. Yeah, and that's across the board. And like I said, I think you're getting lucky if you're pulling. If you're pulling this tactic off, you're just getting lucky. This job is all about timing. It's all about timing, and timing is so hard, so hard on the fire ground. So to add this point of uh, difficulty of timing, it just it's it's a monkey wrench in the whole system. And I think you got to be fired up, Jeremy. <laughs> That's the point. I love it. And the other piece that we, we haven't even touched on is, with, especially for us up in the Northeast, my, you know, my bread and butter fire is either a, a, a balloon frame multiple dwelling or it's an ordinary constructed uh, you know walk up. Right. So you now you now pressurize. You know the fire building. If this fire has gone beyond uh, the, uh, the the compartment and gone and become structural, you're going to drive. You're going to pressurize that that void space, and you're going to drive that fire all throughout that building. And once it gets into the uh, the open stud channels or gets into the you know the wet wall pipe chases, forget it. You know, forget it. It's going right to the cockloft or right to the attic. Good points for sure, Mickey. What are you drinking? Since we're all listening to you, pour a drink and. <laughs> Yeah, my ass. My ass. I love it. All right, so um, 
Uh, Nick, you brought up a good point, too, but I do want to reiterate, if anybody else is in the crowd, we're going to go to about 9.30, so we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, you know, I see Joe down there, Cameron, you know, Jeremy, a couple faces that I do know and have uh, have had some great experiences with. If anybody want to hop in the conversation, man, we'd love to have you up on the stage. Uh, don't be afraid to raise your hand. All you got to do is hit the raise your hand button and we'll bring you up. I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, but, Nick, you brought up a very good point before. We're talking about mechanical ventilation. And we skipped right over, thankfully you mentioned it, but using the line for ventilation. You know, the fact that we have a tool that moves more air for us than anything else in the immediate. And yeah, hydraulic ventilation is one of the, uh, one of the best and most underutilized uh, forms of supplementary ventilation. And, and again, you want, again, you want, you want, if you go back to the, uh, you know, the whole re, you know, resource limited uh, aspect, you, know, you couldn't ask for a better tactic to utilize because it doesn't require any additional manpower, any additional equipment. It's the nozzle team that just knocked down the fire using the hand line that they have in their hands to now create that negative pressure out the window that's hopefully vented, you know, opposite their advance to now, you know, start drawing those, those products, products of combustion immediately out of that space. And the, the beautiful part about the hydraulic ventilation is because it's negative pressure, you're drawing everything out instead of pressurizing the space, which requires you to have uh, an ample uh, number of outlets because, you know, that's another piece of, uh, of positive pressure ventilation that's often, you know, kind of misused or, you know, a piece that's missing is that, especially with these, these high-powered fans that are putting out, you know, 15, 20 plus thousand TFM, that's a tremendous amount of air. And a lot of times we, we don't have the, the amount of uh, exhaust points that we need. And we wind up over-pressurizing the space and it just creates this churning, turbulent effect. And it's just really inefficient. Whereas hydraulically ventilating, you're drawing everything immediately out. And one of the recent fires I've had, which was in, uh, you know, on the sixth floor of a, of a you know, large apartment building and a you know, fire was uh, uncompartmentalized and the entire uh, hallway was, you know, hundred, probably 150 foot hallway was charged floor to ceiling with smoke. We hydraulically ventilated and under a minute we had that place, you know, that whole place cleared out. Uh, so it's, it's pretty profound the effect that it has. And I'll, and I'll, I've already, you know, kind of cut the legs off of PPA. So I might as well do it with the whole smooth bore fog debate too. <laughs> I'm a big smoothbore guy, and for anybody that that you know le- you know leans on that, uh, that that age-old excuse of well you, you know you you can't hydraulically ventilate with a smoothbore, well I'm I'm you know call, calling BS on that because all you have to do is pull the tip off the end of the smoothbore nozzle, half bail that thing, and all and there you go, you've got a, a broken stream with a higher velocity. I can do this exact same thing. Um, and especially you start working that line around inside the window to generate even more um, your CFMs, you're good to go. So that, that tired old excuse is, is totally bunk. I think one of the best feelings in the entire world is taking a beat and crawling down a long hallway, knocking fire down, getting to the seat of the fire, putting that fire out, and then hydraulically bedding that room at the nozzleman and just taking and feeling the wind go by you and just thinking to yourself, I just took a beat, but that was pretty awesome, you know? I love that. You feel you feel like the dog sticking the head out the window on a nice Sunday drive. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. I do. 
We um we run uh we run uh, TFTs in in uh in on my engine and uh, not by choice, just what the was assigned. But um, what we do and what I what I do tell my guys is we do run smooth bore um, on our main attack lines. Uh, but we have um, screw off tip and we have an uh, a fog uh, attachment that can screw on. So we take the smooth bore tip off and we can screw it on. So after we make that that hit. Things start to lift a little bit, and we take a we take a half a second, you know, blow. You know, I always like the nozzle man to have that in his pocket. It's just something I did very early on. It just makes mop up. Um, I don't know, uh, just something we do. It's a little little something we do, whether you agree or disagree with that. Um, I just find it does move at the end. I mean, I agree with you, Nick. You can move plenty of air with a smoothbore for sure, but I do like to keep that in my pocket for that cleanup and mop up at the end. You know, I think the thing with task force tips that I like, and that's what you said you have, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, is if you have a, you know, water issues or you have an inadequate chauffeur for the day, just say, and they're not operating at the right pressure, you're still going to get a stream with that nozzle. If you have a, with a, a, a smooth bore or a solid stream, you're not going to get that stream. You have to be accurate. And that's a problem with the fire service today is inaccuracy. So those fog nozzles, those task force tips, that that's a nice, it's nice insurance policy that you might not have the flow, but you're gonna have the stream. I'm with you. I'm with you. Just one of those little things we do. We keep it in the in the engine, and whoever gets the nozzle for that fire, you know, whoever just, uh, gets that position, uh, typically I like them to just throw it in their in their pant pocket and take it with them. You know. Yeah. So anyway. Nick's not jumping in, so he wholeheartedly disagrees with me on that. Listen, I don't care what Nazi <laughs> uses to put the fire. Hey, you know what? That, that's that's a great point, and, and ultimately, it's you know, most of us can't impact what equipment we carry. That's right. So you just got to learn how to do to use what you have to the best of your ability, and and that's really the the, the end of the story. Because you can't change what nozzles you carry, you know, today or tomorrow. So you better get good at, uh, at what you have, and that's that's the fact of the matter. Yeah, and that, and that you guys both make a very good point with that. And as we're starting to wrap up a little bit, I think that's something that should be said because too often uh, I see all over social media where they're pushing, you know, it's got to be this way, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. Um, and in fact, like you said, Nick, most people can't affect. Or, or have control of what equipment are on their apparatus. And so, uh, Mickey, you bring up a good point, man. You just got to get the job done, regardless of what's, you know, in your hands or on that line or in your pockets. Um, you got to get the job done. Nobody gives a shit, uh, you know, what the excuses are. All right. So, uh, response times, construction types, uh, the line moves air, negative versus positive. We have all these things. Um, how about some tips for large large space ventilation. I know hydraulic works very well. Um, you know, this is all things ventilation part two. So, uh, I do want to just kind of talk about large area. Um, you know, in, in any tips or tricks you have in, uh, large square footage, uh, moving air, any ideas It's kind of out there left field shit. I think if you're dealing with a large area, if you're like a, a gymnasium or a warehouse yep. or something like that, there's probably a lot of built-in fans that you have to evaluate. Um, try to find the source of the power for them. I like and, that. Uh, either shut them down or turn them on, depending on, you know, ventilation isn't always a must. Sometimes you have to stop the ventilation. So finding those areas, finding the shutoff, 
and uh, dictating what's going to come next. So if you have, say, a hospital, right, and say you have a fire on one floor and it's in the ventilation system, now it's pushing throughout the building. So you have to understand you have to, you have to find that area and shut it down so you're not pumping smoke throughout the building. Good points, Mick, for sure. All right. Where else you want to go with this? We got about 15 minutes. I figured we'd go till 930. What did I miss? Is there something that you two are hot and heavy on that you want to talk about that we did not hit on since nobody wants to come up and ask any more questions? be covered at all, Jeremy. Well, then, then we're going to then we're going to start to wrap them. Um, last call for anybody in the crowd listening. If you want to hop up on stage and say hello or ask a question or just have a conversation, uh, we'd love to have you. Here we go. We got, uh, who's coming up? Buddy again. Hawaii in the house. Go ahead, brother. What do you got? All right. Um, so I actually wanted, I read an article uh, from FDNY about wind-driven fires in high-rise buildings. Um, Two years ago in Honolulu, we had a, a Marco Polo fire. It was a wind-driven fire. Uh, all the doors of the apartments were open, and it's kind of like open where the wind was just howling through, and, and we kind of got our butt kicked. Um, and at the time, we were we didn't have large diameter, not large diameter, but we didn't have uh, two-and-a-half uh, Denver bundles at the time for high-rise. So we switched to that. We did all the training for that, but... When I read the article, it, it talked about the dangers of that and how deadly it, it could be. But I was wondering, in your experience, uh, what are some of the solutions uh, when it comes to those wind-driven, uh, wind-driven fires? Number one is door control. You got to get control of that door and understand where the where the wind is coming from. So, um, I'm sure Hawaii, it can be coming from anywhere. You know, onshore or offshore in island, it can come from any direction, but identifying what direction the wind's coming and then controlling that door. Um, there's a few things. Now, door control from the fire apartment or door control from the stairwell. Two crucial things. Um, if the fire apartment door is not controlled, now the door control starts at the stairwell. And that's very dangerous because once you enter that stairwell, you're entering you're entering a tunnel of fire, more or less. Um, with wind-driven fire, it's not a constant drive a lot of times. A lot of times the winds go and then stops. So it's a false sense of security. So the wind may stop, then you make the push in the hallway, and then the wind turns again. Um, so we have, uh, you know, we have the blanket and the curtains that we use now from the floor above we drop down. Um, it's, it's effective. It works. They've been to fires when we've used them. Um, but let's get away from the high-rise uh, fire. We had a fire just two nights ago where I am, wind-driven fire in a six-story H-type. Um, Thank God no one was burned. I, I can't believe nobody was hurt. I was not working. Um, the guys did a tremendous job. But it all came down to understanding wind direction, door control, and getting those holes in the roof. you got to get a hole in the roof on the top floor. Top floor wind-driven fire in the Class 3 building, you got to get holes. you got to cut a trench. So it's very labor-intensive. It goes to multiple arms quickly. But my advice to you in dealing with this is not necessarily the right hose. It's about getting the hose in position and door control. If you lose control of that hallway, a tactic you can use, which is very labor-intensive, um, but cross the hallway, enter an apartment, and you can actually breach walls your way to the actual fire apartment. So you're actually stretching the line through each apartment, through the walls, to get to the seat of the fire, and you're now protected by the apartment, not necessarily the hallway. Wow, awesome. Uh would never have thought of that, so I appreciate uh, 
that, uh, but yeah, yeah, actually, man. really quick, uh, uh, enlightening on the blanket, uh, technique that you mentioned earlier about what is that? I'm, I'm not sure if I've, I've heard of that. So we have a curtain or a blanket, depending on what you want to call it, but, uh, it's just a, a not fireproof. I don't know. I shouldn't know the actual, what the rating is, but it's a fire, very fire resistant, I should say, but the floor above team goes there. And then on orders of the chief, you now drop this into the window where the wind is driving into, and that'll stop the stop the wind from going into the apartment where the engine company can now make their push down the hallway or into the apartment. Gotcha. I understand. Right on. Thanks for your input on that. Um, yeah, I think the issue with that particular building is there was no there was no way to uh, like close the door. Essentially, um, it was just an open space and uh, because of the trade winds that we have here uh it was like a constant <laughs> um brutal um heated uh situation so eventually uh it was you know taken under control and all that but uh and thankfully no one uh no firefighters uh lost their lives but we did lose a few civilians so now and, quick question for you was that a um how many stories was that building it was it a fireproof building uh it was Built before uh, the se- 1970s or whatnot, so there's no sprinklers, uh, and I believe it's somewhere. I don't know. I remember exactly. I was still in EMS at the time, but I think it's at least it's at least a 20-story uh, high-rise. Wow. Yeah. All right, just something to keep in mind when you get to those fires and make this a routine, even on your EMS runs. Get in the habit of counting doors. So you come out of the hallway and you go one, two, three. Okay, I'm in for the EMS run, or one, two, three. I'm in for the water leak or one, two, three, I'm in for the job, and now it's a wind-driven fire, and I have to get back in the stairwell, one, two, three, on your way out. Another thing to keep in mind, if you are lost in the hallway, and you come across a hinge, a hinge door, hinges do not lead to the way out 99% of the time. It'll lead to a storage room, a compactor room, an elevator shaft. So if you're looking for a way out and you're jammed up, you want to find a door with no hinge that opens away from you. Right on. I appreciate that. You got it, bro. Nuggets. I love it. That is good stuff. All right, listen, let's, uh, unless somebody else has anything, um, I think we're going to start the wrap. So uh, let's do this. Mickey, thank you, brother. Um, good nuggets there at the end. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time tonight to hop in on the National Fire Radio Shop Talk uh, episode. And um, where can people find you? Um, if they want to reach out, uh, your social media, what do you have? Uh, you can just find me at top four tactics on Instagram. That's all I got. Love it. Perfect. And Nick Papa, thank you, brother. Uh, you have, uh, just like Mickey have become a good friend and, uh, I value you, uh, very much so. And so where can people find you if they want to reach out, look up some of your, uh, content and so on. Uh, best place to follow me is on Instagram at fireside training. I also just launched a, a new website. At, which is fire, firesidetraining.org. Uh, you can uh, look up everything I got going on as well as uh, the speaking engagements I'm doing and, and things I got going on through that website as well. Awesome, brother. Thank you. And uh, truly, thank you both for being here tonight. I appreciate you guys taking an hour and a half to talk about uh, you know a topic that doesn't, in my eyes, get enough attention in the fire service, and that's ventilation. So this was our part two. Uh, the first go around was Larry D. Camillo out of Stafford, Texas, retired Houston, and uh, Sean Egan, uh, Buffalo firefighter, or, or I should say, boss up in Buffalo now uh, on seven trucks. So 
Um, thank you to you two and the two guys previous on ventilation, and we're going to move on to a new topic. Uh, I don't have the next date yet, but uh, we will announce it. And uh, thank you for everybody in the crowd tonight, the audience listening. Um, I thought a lot of good information was shared tonight, and we were able to record it, so we will release it at a later date. And uh, Nick and Mickey, thank you guys for hopping in. And um, with that, have a good night, everyone. We're out of here. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in this week and listening to another episode on the National Fire Radio Podcast channels. We truly appreciate the support. We thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to our interviews, our roundtables, our discussions. It means the world. Like, share, leave a comment. The more we engage, the more we can grow and push the word out and keep making this job better.